Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Louis Hota. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast highlights some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs along the border. This season, we are focused on organizations that put the corporal works of mercy into practice. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! Our topic this week is giving drink to the thirsty. We will be interviewing Chloe Rastatter and Krista Cook, who are two of the three engineers that founded a grassroots organization called Solidarity Engineering, which, among other things, has taken the lead in addressing water and sanitation issues, first in Matamoros and now in Reynosa. Stay tuned for that. But first, let's talk about some of our friends from Cocina Carpa Amaria, Claudia, Xiomara, Elizabeth, and others, who just love to take photos. I feel like we always hit on this topic, but it (laughs) never goes away. That's because every time we go back, they want to take more photos. We take photos every time we visit Carpa Maria, and it's great. I mean, they really are proud of the work that they're doing, and they're also proud of their relationship with us, too, I think. That's right. They're affectionate. They want to give us a hug when we arrive, maybe a couple bonus hugs along the way, and they like taking pictures, too. And one of my favorite lines that they throw out there sometimes is they'll say, oh, well, you have to take a picture with me today. I took a shower. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, it's a rare thing to get a shower sometimes. I mean, taking, you know, we wake up every morning and take our shower. Well, most of us, Brian, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to get into our personal hygiene habits. Thank you, Louis. (laughs) But, but, but. Uh, it's it's quite another thing to be living in this camp, and then uh, there's you know there are bathing facilities across the street, but they have to pay five pesos or twenty five cents to go take a shower over there. Yeah, it's both for bathing and for cleaning cleaning clothing. Uh, it might be a bit of a shady operation. We've heard kind of mixed things about who it is that's even running this sort of makeshift. Uh, sh- these makeshift shower stalls or whatnot. But the, the fact of the matter is, what we see is that migrants who are living in the plaza, a plaza that's filled with two or 3,000 people, have a handful of basic, basic shower stalls set up across the street in basically an abandoned building. And that's their only option for bathing regularly. And even to do so, you've got to pay some money to do it. Now, okay, five pesos, 25 cents, doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, it's not something you're necessarily going to do every day when you're living in the situation in the camp where your resources are stretched extremely thin. So, yeah, if you've showered that day, you better bet you're going to take a picture of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly what we get. And that's why, you know, we get that line a lot when we're, when we're visiting our friends in Carpa Maria. Because the reality is, I mean, you can get dirty in the camp from a lot of different ways. I mean, you're living outside. You're living outside in these crowded conditions. And I think, you know, something we don't always think about is, the dirt in the camp, there's just so much dirt on the ground. It maybe was grass at one point, but now it's all been, you know, brought up and it's just all dirt. And so when it rains, all of that dirt turns into mud. Yeah, that's got to be one of the worst. The days where we've crossed into northern Mexico and Reynosa and it's been a rainy day or it's just recently rained, it's like the camp is just a whole nother reality because the, the mud makes it so difficult even just to walk around between tents or otherwise. 
the water gets into the tents too. Everybody's stuff gets wet, and then it starts to get cold. And you know, kids, as much as you know, as much as the parents try to take care of them and make sure that they're safe and clean, I mean, they're not gonna they're not gonna be in their tent all day. So they're out playing in the rain, playing in the mud. Everything gets really, really dirty. It gets dirty. That's right. And you know, you got to think about the reality of these tents. You know, I've gone on. We've both gone on plenty of hiking or backpacking trips where you stay in a tent, maybe it rains overnight and you wake up in the morning and you know, you're all dry and you just got to shake up the shake off the tent and maybe pack it up or otherwise. Well, people are using in the plaza these same kind of camping tents except instead of a weekend trip, they've been living out there for 2, 3, 4 up over 6 months in some cases and these tents just aren't equipped, aren't built to endure for this amount of time. So, we see Every time we're there, tents that are just in different states of disrepair. And so that means there's a lot of tears and rips in them and holes that have just grown over the passage of time. So they say, you know, sometimes the water comes in from the top, sometimes the water comes in from the bottom. But one of our most requested items, I would say, certainly in the past couple months, has been tarps. And part of that is we've been providing tarps that have been tied up to cover up all these holes that people have in their tents. Yeah, the tarps cut down on the rain. They keep people dry. They cut down on the wind as well because the wind can sweep through. It also helps with some insulation inside the tent so that at least your body heat can stay contained in the tent and, and stay warm. So these are, I mean, these are conditions that you wouldn't want your enemies to be living in. You know, you just, these are conditions that you wouldn't want anyone to be living in. And yet, you know, I think we talk about tents and everybody's like, oh, kind of camping or, but this is really, this is slums, you know, this is people living in the dirt and not just one person in one of these tents, but sometimes six people, sometimes seven or eight, you know, it's just a lot of people in a very small space. Yeah, and nowadays when we're when we're donating tents there, oftentimes it's it's replacement. It's because a tent has become so just worn down and degraded that it need that that a family needs a new tent to replace it. Well, one of the places where our donations often go, tents and tarps and otherwise, we we distribute among the four cocinas. And one of our good friends is Tunia, who has for for many months now been in charge of Cocina del Amor or the kitchen of love. Uh, there should be music to that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Tunia has been just a great uh, collaborator with us and, and runs a very well-organized kitchen. And uh, she's one of the ones that I think has highlighted for me about just how how difficult the rain is. Because now we, we are getting out of passing through the winter season, I guess you could say. Now, Brownsville, Texas, we're, we're not... It's not like we're in Boston and we're getting buried in snow, but we've certainly seen a lot of colder temperature days in December, January, February, where the temp- temperatures at night might get into the 30s around freezing. Um, and so we're often, when we're in camp on Tuesdays or Thursdays, we might be giving some kind of weather updates, just kind of checking in. Did you hear this is the upcoming weather? It's going to get cold or it's going to be rainy. And you know, my first reaction is always to the cold, the nervousness about migrants who have come from Central America, from tropical climates, and now all of a sudden they're going to be, you know, sleeping in a night where it's 30 or 40 degrees. So cold was kind of always my biggest concern. And Tunia, I think, was one of the first ones to turn me on to the issue of the rain. And I think her her first line, to, her line to me exactly was, you know, we can endure the cold; it's the rain that's the worst. 
And she's done a lot to cut down on the exposure to the rain in her part of the camp. She's she's used the resources that we've been we've given her and others have given her to cover the the tents and tarps that they already have to make sort of a big canopy uh, out of a huge tarp that they got, uh, and also to make some corridors within uh, their section of the camp where people are sleeping on the ground uh, because they don't have access to tents. And these corridors, uh, they put up tents, almost like walls, um, to cut down on the wind and the rain that might be coming through. So they've really done a lot to invest in kind of the infrastructure of this area so that people can be a little more comfortable. Now, not the most comfortable, you know, not, not you know, the Ritz, but definitely uh, something that's a little better than being totally exposed to the elements. Yeah, it's impressive. I get impressed more and more every time I walk into Cocina del Amor. I mean, I think they've got six beach canopies that you might sit on the beach with to have some shade. And then those are covered with an enormous tarp that we bought recently just because it, you know, the water was getting in in between each of these canopies. And so to have one big outdoor tarp over it. And then, yeah, they've taken all these little square tarps and put walls al- along the canopies to prevent some of the wind getting in. And I mean, as impressed as I am, Antonia is like glowing with pride when she's looking at the improvements in the infrastructure and how much of a difference it's made in terms of keeping out water and rain and protecting people from the other elements like wind and, and otherwise. And yet it's hard to miss the reality that we see every time we're there because uh, the the row of the canopies extends down one of the few kind of paved walking paths. And that's one of the places where new arrivals, as they're trying to figure out, is there space in a tent for them to move into, might have to spend a night or two sleeping on the ground. And, and they'll pull out some uh, some ground pads and they'll give them some blankets or sleeping bags or whatever they might have. But it's clearly not, I mean, the camp in general, very difficult place to live. That first night or two, it can be extremely disorienting. And then you're sleeping exposed underneath these canopies, but just sleeping on the path. And that's the reality in this camp, in the plaza that we've been mostly working with. Uh, But the good news is that there are some other spaces that are opening up with quite a bit more investment in organization. That There are new camps because the Mexican government does not want people to be in this plaza for much longer. So NGOs have come together to erect new camps in order to support people that will be moving out of this space and new people that will be coming in the future. And so uh, Solidarity Engineering, who we're talking to today, have been really invested in organizing these new camps, making sure there's a way to keep it dry, putting in showers and and a space that's dedicated to tents alone. You know, just that idea of having a more organized space and, and what that will be able to do to people is is really encouraging. I mean, we're still in a situation that shouldn't exist. You know, we're still in a situation that's that's really a humanitarian crisis, and yet just these simple ways of organizing are going to help. You know, some of these factors that are that are really keeping people literally in the mud. Solidarity Engineering is doing great work with our theme of Catholic social teaching, giving drink to the thirsty. But it's so much more than that. The the issue of water is so much more complex, especially when you're looking at the situation, just as we're trying to highlight here. And and Solidarity Engineering, with the new camp, uh, with the new camps that are being built, are looking to address both the good and the bad that water brings in these situations. Certainly the good in terms of providing water for drinking and bathing and cleaning, 
but they're also looking to address the challenges with water in terms of addressing flooding by digging ditches and laying gravel and things like that. So they're doing super impressive work, and we're very pleased to bring them onto this podcast. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our interview with Chloe Rastetter and Krista Cook. We're excited to welcome today for our two guests, Chloe Rastatter and Krista Cook, who are part of Solidarity Engineering. So welcome to both of you. Good to have you with us on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Just to maybe get things started, I think it's cool that we have you on our podcast, as you yourselves have a podcast, which I think we might talk about later. But even to go back in time, part of the reason you're down here is because of a podcast. Oh, yeah. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the origin story of what it is that brought you down to the Rio Grande Valley and got you started down here. Yeah, so there are three founders of Solidarity Engineering. It's myself, Chloe Rastatter, Krista, and then our third, Aaron Hughes. And in 2019, in November, October or November, This American Life produced an episode that is called The Outcrowd that went on to win the first ever Pulitzer Prize for audio journalism. And... This podcast was focused at the time on MPP, Migrant Protection Protocols, and the camp in Matamoros, which at the time was kind of the first and only refugee camp on the other side of our border. And in it, there was an interview with Helen Perry, who was the executive director of Global Response Management at the time, which is a medical organization down here. And she mentioned how there was not enough bathrooms and no clean water. And Ira Glass, the host, was like, well, what are you going to do about it? And she's like, well, I'm going to get clean water. And he was like, have you ever done clean water? And she said, no, but I'm going to Google it. And, you know, those are engineering problems. Like, clean water is a little bit more complicated than that. So I heard this podcast when I heard this podcast driving in the car in November. I reached out to Helen Perry and Global Response Management asking, you know, if there's anything I can do as an engineer. I'd worked in some camps before, and she responded saying that there was no engineers down here, but could come down and and see what was up. Yeah, so I heard the same podcast. I was um, at the time a graduate student in Villanova. And I was walking to campus, I heard this podcast, and I walked into my advisor, Jordan Romilio's office, and I played that five minutes where Helen's like, oh, I'll Google it. And he goes, ooh, we could do something about that. And I thought, yeah, Jordan, we absolutely can. So he sent me and um, Brett Thompson and Wes Schugart-Smith down to the border. It was almost exactly one month after the This American Life episode came out. Um, so I, same thing, I emailed Helen who forwarded me to Blake and he met us down there and we installed what was called an aqua block. It's a kind of a simple water filtration system. Um, and that was December of 2019. And then I graduated in May and I had a job lined up with, uh, Catholic relief services, but it got canceled because of COVID. And I was in Dallas where I'm from on my mama's couch because uh, of COVID. And I thought, oh, it's, it's, it's time for me to find something else. And I thought, I'm going to reach back out to, to Tucker of Global Response Management and see if they need any help down at the border. And he said, absolutely, you should come down because we got two other engineers, Aaron and Chloe, 
who you're definitely going to vibe with, and he was very right, um, came down and we just started working together at first in a very informal um, kind of just doing projects here and there, digging drainage ditches, um, working on showers, distributing the water from the aqua block, stuff like that. And then we decided, um, it was actually, I remember one day we were looking for 250 bucks. That was it. Cause we needed sandbags to raise this rotoplast so it can then be gravity fed to these clothes washing stations. And we were just like, where are we going to find this 250 bucks? And we just decided it's, it's time. We've got to formalize because we need funding. You know, engineering projects are really expensive. Um, so, uh, that's kind of how we got started. So podcasts have a, a spot in our heart for yeah. sure. And, and so does Iraglass. Thank you, Iraglass. Thank you, Iraglass. We love you. <laughs> Please send us money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he listens yeah. to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so you're three women engineers. You found Solidarity Engineering. And what, uh, you know, what has it been like to sort of lead the charge as three women being involved in all of these projects, you know, not just in Reynosa right now, not just in the new projects emerging, but throughout this whole time, you've accompanied people from Matamoros to, to now where we are today. So what is it like to be a team of women in this space? Yeah, I think that this space is really women dominated in a lot of ways on the humanitarian actor side, You ha especially on the American side. It's a lot of women leaders. And then on the Mexican side, because obviously a lot of our work takes place in Mexico with the Mexico-based team, I think the fact that we are women is one of the biggest strengths that our team has because it allows us to be approachable from all different populations. We see things from a little bit of a different perspective than if we were, you know, an all-male team because wash, water, sanitation, hygiene really is a women's issue, especially in places like this. Yeah. So, for instance, as an example of that, when we were doing interviews, we do hygiene kits. We, we distribute hygiene kits. And we were doing interviews with people to see what was the most useful items. And, you know, we assumed that having dis, uh, reusable menstrual pads would be helpful because while well, you could use it over and over again, it's not only going to last a month. Um, but upon these interviews, people were like, actually, no, we really prefer disposable ones because there's nowhere to wash them and there's nowhere mm -hmm. to dry them. Um, and I f just think women were comfortable enough to give us that feedback because we're also women. I think if men had approached them with that same question, I think it, it's likely that women would not have felt so comfortable to give their honest feedback. Um, so that's an example of, of how it's been such a strength for sure. And I think it allows us to, you know, maybe diversify our projects a little bit more. Although we're an engineering organization, we do so much more than that. We have, for example, women's classes, like we have women's English classes, which were created partially to teach women English because they're about to come into the U.S. and that's a huge skill set partially to give women a safe space in Reynosa because that really doesn't exist and partially to be able to get community feedback directly from the people we're serving who, you know, every day we work with construction crews, but the construction crews are almost only men. And so the fact that we're women allows us to really easily engage with the other half of the population in a less traditional manner. You know, the theme for our, our current season of the podcast is the corporal works of mercy. So these sort of mandates of our faith to, to respond to the real needs, the physical needs of people. And the theme of this episode in particular is to give drink to the thirsty. 
And it seems like such a simple thing, right? Like, yeah, you know, just hand a cup of water. Like you're in a marathon, just hand off a cup <laughs> of water and then you're done. But clearly your work is, is much more labor intensive, much more intense, takes a lot of brain power and planning to get it off the ground. So I'm just wondering if you can speak to that. Like, what is it like to, to sit there as a, as a committee, to sit there as a group and to come up with ways to do something that seems so simple, like give drink to the thirsty, what is it like to go through that process together? And, and how, is that, how has that impacted your own relationship with the camp to do something like just, just to bring water to people? I would definitely say it's, it's an iterative process because, you know, as engineers, you're very much trained um, and to think things pretty long term, you know, especially when it comes to infrastructure. We're usually designing 20, 30 years for the life of the infrastructure you're built as a traditional engineer. So we've been having to navigate the space of how do we design something that is going to serve the needs of this population now in about a week. In engineering, it's the design part usually takes months. We often only have a week. Um, and so how do we design something that's adequate enough to serve for a shorter time frame, but for a very high population, um, while also balancing budgets and balancing social constraints? Because a lot of our work, the design we do within our work, it's, not, it's technical, of course, um, but there is a huge social component. For instance, uh, with the Aqua Black and the Matamoros camp, there's at the very end of this water treatment system, you put a little dose of chlorine for residual effect. So that way, if you put in a dirty cup or something, the water is still potable. But we got a lot of pushback because um, the asylum seekers themselves didn't understand why would you put chlorine bleach in water. We clean with that. So they socially were just unwilling to drink this water. So it's a balance of finding um, technical engineering solutions that make sense in this social context. A lot of our solutions, when you just look at them, look pretty simple. It's like, for example, the plaza, how we're providing water is we're having a big water truck come in and fill these giant tanks. And, you know, there's really no design in there, but there's so many social systems that you're working within and fitting engineering in these overarching systems and understanding how it all works and, you know, even w like where's the best place to put aid? Who's the best person to trust for to manage it? Do we even know the best person to trust to manage it? Are we going to get involved in a shelter that is going to long-term affect the asylum seekers in a negative manner? And there are questions that, the so you know, the social side informs our engineering just as much as the engineering informs and affects the social side of things. I mean, water is so much more than just drinking. It's showering. It's washing your clothes. It's washing your hands. There's so many systems within the overarching system of water that fundamentally affect people's lives. And we have to figure out how to navigate not only on a very low resource level building these systems, but within, but also navigate the situation of working in somewhere like Reynosa, where there's a lot of gray area, where it's very dangerous, where you don't always know what the best thing it like what the best thing to do is. It seems like it's been a learning experience in so many ways, even as you talk about your origins working in the camp in Matamoros and then shifting over to Reynosa and trying to apply some of the lessons learned, which I think is really good. And I just think uh, you know we're we're not from the none of the none of the none of us are from the border, right? And we've all been down here and. In the, in the few months we've, we've been down here, I feel like it's been such a learning experience in so many ways. And one of the things that happens a lot for us is that friends or family are, are 
are learning through us or asking, peppering us with questions about the reality of migration and the border and what's going on here. And I feel like we've learned a lot. And that was part of the origin of starting this podcast even was kind of to share some of the experiences and stories and people working down here. So aside from the engineering lessons, which you've, you've already shared some of those, I'm just wondering about your perspectives on moving down to the Rio Grande Valley, of working with, with migrants here on the U.S.-Mexico border. I imagine you two get peppered with questions from family and friends a lot as well. So what are the, some of the things that you like to share to kind of paint the picture of the reality of what you've learned in your time being down here? I think really one thing that I have learned and that's been a hard lesson to learn is what media portrays a situation to be is not always accurate and it is incredible like watching the change in the way the border was talked about not only in media but by politicians throughout the administration change has been really frustrating because the situation at the border has gotten way worse since biden took over partially just as a as a partially just because time has passed and Title 42 is still there. So, you know, that bottleneck has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And I think it has really been frustrating to watch that from the ground, people not thinking that just because the overall discourse on the higher levels has shifted a little bit, what's happening on the ground has not. And it almost takes away responsibility from our fellow Americans to kind of help out because at the end of the day, it's a refugee crisis, whether we want to call it that or not, there are people, there are thousands and thousands of people living in on the ground in the streets in tents and they're not getting any aid from international organizations, from the government. And I think that that is really frustrating to try to navigate. Yeah, I think also, um, I think a lot of Americans look at these this population as, as homogenous, um, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Not only is it not homogenous because of a, the the path in a Guatemalan would face to seek asylum is very different, for instance, in the path of a Cuban, but not even just, you know, their country of origin, their own personal stories, their own personal lives. Um, they, they very much are not homogenous, and I think that's a question that... Um, roundabout gets asked a lot. Yeah. And I think one major thing that I have learned through the podcast and through talking to a lot of asylum seekers is I don't think people realize how many asylum seekers are actually indigenous peoples to the Americas. And that just kind of gets swept under the rug a lot. There's a lot of conversation about indigenous rights within our own borders. But as soon as someone, you know, am I and leaves Guatemala, they're suddenly just Guatemalan and that all of the trauma that has been going on for the centuries and all of that inequality is just forgotten and they're suddenly migrants. And I, I think also another point I'd like to emphasize is they're definitely not helpless people. They have been and so inspiring watching them, um, for instance, form their own hygiene committees that we support, yes, but it is their hygiene committees. Um, they've really taken a lot of action to make their current situations as livable as possible. And I think that's a, another misconception on the American side is that they're a helpless group because they are not, they're coming with skills, they're coming with a level of education. They don't speak English, but that doesn't mean that they are incapable. They offer a lot of skills. You've talked about the uh, non-homogenous reality of migrants and how you start to see even just the individual stories 
even mentioned a couple by name. I'm wondering if there's even just a, a story or two of a migrant or a face whose picture you want to paint a little bit that kind of is one that's really touched your heart and helped to kind of continue to motivate you and your work down here. Yeah, we have the same. We looked at each other. For those who didn't see me, and Krista just looked at each other and said the exact same name because it's an obvious choice is Perla, who was an asylum seeker that we worked with in our first camp in Matamoros. She was a pharmacist for she was a pharmacist for global response management. And this woman, Perla for president, is what I will always <laughs> say. Perla came up um, from Nicaragua as Perla's a grandma, so she came up from Nicaragua with her daughter and her two granddaughters. So it was four women by themselves. And we met Perla after, you know, she had already been living in the camp for a little bit and she was pretty established. And Perla does not mess around. Perla was – I have never met someone who was such an advocate for kids as I have through Perla. She is the reason the school was built. She's the reason we built the school. But my favorite Perla story is she'd been trying for a while to get somebody to build the school and no one would bite. And so she went to Aaron, our, our third. And she's like, Aaron, can you help me build a school? And Aaron was like, yeah, on it. We built the school. There was a big party. It got open. You know, there was a big opening party. And that night, not even one day had passed, Perla starts sending us pictures of playgrounds, being like, all right, cool, ne next, next, next project, next project. And just to see such a powerful, loving, charismatic woman and, like, grow alongside her was an incredible experience. You know, and we actually were lucky enough to, to catch up with Perla last week. Um, she's now in Miami, and we, we happened to be there. So we went over to Perla's house, and she was telling us a lot more about her journey from Nicaragua here. She was fleeing the Nicaraguan government. Um, I believe some people in her family had been murdered, and so it was just the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. She, she needed to start going. She was telling us in depth about how she was kidnapped in Reynosa, her, her daughter, and her two granddaughters, and what it was like getting out of that experience and ending up in Matamoros. And we're talking to Perla, and she's asking us, uh, how's it going in Reynosa? And, you know, we're, we're, we're being honest. It's, it's rough. It's dangerous. Um, and she, in all seriousness, was like, when I get my paperwork, when my asylum goes through, I want to come back, and I want to help again in Reynosa. And she didn't say it once or twice. Perla never says something once or twice. <laughs> Perla's going to let you know 15 times that she is ready. Um, and that, to me, is just so inspiring. She was kidnapped in the city. You know, she, I'm sure there was a lot of other heartaches that she did not share with us. And she still wants to come back because the way she sees it is she can be such a, a powerhouse and such an advocate for asylum seekers who are often sort of forgotten about, um, particularly children. You know, they're out of school for often years at a time and they fall behind pretty quickly. And I think that's why Perla took it upon herself to say, you know what, somebody needs to organize something for these children because they are by far the most vulnerable. Um, so Perla for president. Perla for president, yeah. Um, she's got our vote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so we're Catholic priests. Uh, that's not, no mystery. And uh, a a question that we like to ask because I think it, it generates some some good answers and sort of paints the picture of of the asylum seekers and also just of the people who are interested in in this work who get involved is what do you see as the role of faith within this kind of work, either for you personally or what you see on the ground from from people who are there? Yeah. yeah. So um 
I did, was not raised religious personally. Um, I did never, I never, you know, had an experience of the power of faith until I met um, a lot of these asylum seekers, you know, primero Dios, they always say that, God first. And I think what, what they mean by that is when a lot of these situations feel so hopeless. Like there's just no next step that having something that keeps you going, some sort of faith um, that feels like a light at the end of the tunnel, I think it's a lot of people through this um, traumatic experience. Um, and it's not only through at a, on an individual level, but I think on a community level too. Um, I'm always taken aback when I'm at Senda de Vida on a Sunday and everybody's singing and everybody's dancing there at church. And it's, it's a happy scene and you don't often see happy scenes in these contexts. Um, so I would say by far one of the biggest lessons Asylum Seekers has taught me personally is, is the power of faith and, and how that can really affect one's psyche. I'm wondering if there are any other people or figures either in your work down here or in your life in general who are mentor figures or models for you in your work and, and the response of what you're doing down here that you want to, you would name and acknowledge? Obviously, I have to shout out my mom here, Rachel. We're big fans of Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. I thought we were going to bring it up. I'm glad you brought it up. Oh, you think I wouldn't bring up my mom on the Desi podcast? This is for you, Mom. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, my mom has definitely been a very big influence on me, both in life and in faith. My mom grew up extremely religious uh, with some missionaries, and I think that fundamentally affected how my whole family viewed religion to an extent because, you know, there there are times when religion is not used in the most productive and helpful manner. And to watch my mom kind of navigate leaving that type of religion but still be very open-minded to it and still be so open and her, the whole... I have never met somebody who has taken the golden rule of treat others the way you want to want to be treated the way that my mom has. And I think she has, like, really fundamentally ingrained that into me. And that is a huge reason why I'm here today. So thanks, Rachel. Yes. Thank you, Rachel. She's also a listener of the Jesuit Border <laughs> podcast. Yeah. And probably the number one fan. She <laughs> connected us support. to the Jesuits. <laughs> yeah. oh, my mom thanks. texts me about the Jazzies. <laughs> so a big shout out to you, Rachel. Great to have you. We are, of course, thrilled to have you on our podcast, but we don't want to let you out of here without a little plug on your own. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Dignity Displaced and how that got started, what you're trying to do with it, and where people can find you. One day, Chloe and I were sitting around just like bitching about the 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 way the media is portraying this uh, crisis was a lot of, it was just showing how, quote unquote, helpless people are. Um, and just getting a lot of the facts wrong. And it was just getting so frustrating that I thought, you know, why don't we just interview people and translate it directly and put it on a podcast? So it's not so pick it and choose and cherry picking. Um, it's more of a broader understanding of, of this context. Um, so that's where the idea came from. And then it kind of morphed into a more focused, um, why are people coming to begin with, which I would say is, is now the main yeah. Point. Dignity Displaced. Yes, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I'm pretty sure wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also find it at solidarityengineering.org. Yep. 
That's great. Well, we'll be. Well, maybe we could do like a cross episode. You know, who? Kind of like, yeah. like Law and Order and ER. <laughs> they mix together. Well, Chloe and Krista, thank you for being here with us. Thanks for being on this podcast. Uh, thank you for your work through Solidarity Engineering and through your podcast, Dignity Displaced. Um, and we hope to continue this relationship. And and we know that we'll be seeing much more of you. Uh, probably more often across the border than here in Texas. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. And also for the, not just on the podcast, but y'all have also been incredibly supportive in our work as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for having us. And thank you for being supportive of all the organizations down here. The Jesuits are like the one thing everyone can agree on. (laughs) (laughs) For now. For For now. now. (laughs) Maybe you haven't been here long enough. (laughs) Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Chloe Rastatter and Krista Cook for joining us. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next week on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos! <laughs>